Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is radical scale, the people, processes, and technology that will ensure our buildings meet the dramatic needs of our future. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio BX. I'm Yatza Frank with the Building Energy Exchange, and today we're speaking with Carl Elefante, a past president of the American Institute of Architects and passionate advocate for an architectural profession that is more engaged with its uh, social and environmental responsibilities than ever before. Carl has been within the leadership at Quinn Evans uh, for 20 years, uh, a firm with a global reputation for excellence in historic preservation and adaptive reuse and other and other work uh, in his time at Quinn Evans Carl has been really central to developing a sustainable stewardship model at the firm uh, providing a really tangible example of leadership for other firms all across the country his stature within the profession was uh, probably most visibly made clear when his fellow professionals elevated him to the presidency of the AIA uh, for 2018 I think from the outside, sometimes these roles can seem almost ceremonial, but adequately serving such a position involves a huge amount of work, and it is work that starts years beforehand. Um, and throughout all of this, Carl has been one of the earliest and most passionate advocates for the role of existing buildings, uh, the role that they must play in our response to climate change. Carl, in fact, coined the now ubiquitous saying that the greenest building is one that has already been built. Carl, welcome to Radio BX. Well, thanks very much, Jatza. I'm not sure I can speak after that introduction. I'm not sure I can live up to it, but uh, I really appreciate it. I feel very welcome. (laughs) Uh, You are very welcome. We're very excited to have you here. Um, And I left so much off of your resume. Um, So... uh, uh, you're a humble man. Um, I want to sort of begin talking about your sort of early focus as, as a young architect. I'm curious sort of how early sustainability was a focus in your professional career as an architect. Did you know this would be a focus in architecture school or did, it, did that come later? Uh, in a way, the answer is both. And, and uh, a lot of this has to do with kind of what was intentional versus what was sort of uh, subliminal. And so subliminally, it absolutely started in school. I started at Pratt Institute in the late 60s in New York City. Penn Station's demolition was still palpable in the city. Um, actually, the, the first week I was there, uh, Philip Johnson came to the architecture school and spoke, and he was one of the people who really led the charge to try to keep Penn Station from being demolished. Um, so that was going on. Also, Earth Day, the first Earth Day happened while I was there at Pratt. Uh, the Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses battle was being waged. You know, so it was really right. it was really in the, uh, you know, sort of in the water, you know, and in the air. Um, right. Then uh, Paula Solari came and spoke at Pratt while I was there. 
And he sort of connected to my, uh, I'll call it solar hippie uh, you know, <laughs> being, you know. And um, if life hadn't gotten in the way, I think I might have ended up at Arcosanti at some point. Um, and then I just want to mention one other thing, and that is that this all changed really a lot in the 90s when I got involved with the President's Council on Sustainable Development during the Clinton administration. And, and that's, when I, that's when I sort of professionalized it. You know, it really became an intent of my profession. And I'll kind of leave it at there. Yeah. When in your professional time did you become interested in a really active role um, at the AIA? Uh, so I'm a perennial volunteer. Uh, I'm yeah. kind of foolishly so. I have to learn <laughs> the word no at some point, you know, but so far, yes, has served me pretty well. Um, and you know, that's been true in in just sort of my whatever community I'm part of. So, you know, Tacoma Park, Maryland, where I live and, you know, getting involved with community development things here. I, I was on the board of a group that established a, a building product a reuse uh, of a warehouse called Community Forklift. I, I I organized the volleyball team and the and the architectural <laughs> volleyball, you know, at any rate. So I'm, I'm just sort of that sort of person. Um, Again, professionally, I did get involved mostly first with the Association for Preservation Technology, APT, and that was kind of a a Quinn Evans culture thing, you know, that that was just kind of there for me to pick up. And pretty soon that led to the U.S. Green Building Council and the the, uh, National Capital Region. Uh, establishing the, you know, the local chapter of mm-hmm. that. And actually, uh, Gina Bokra, who's, you know, in the building department, was one of the uh, founding board members uh, of that National Capital Region chapter when I was there. Um, and before long, it led to AIA. And, and I just have to right. just give you one other little story about AIA. So I called up Lloyd Unseld, who was the uh, chapter executive at the AIA Potomac Valley chapter, which is, you know, I'm in suburban Maryland, 100 yards outside of the District of Columbia. So my local chapter is the AIA Potomac Valley chapter, not the DC chapter. And I called him up and said, you know, I've been doing all this stuff for everything else, but I really haven't been volunteering much for AIA. I'd really like to volunteer for the chapter. What can I do? He said, you want to be president? And it's like, (laughs) Okay, you just told me everything I need to know. This chapter is desperate for people. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, five years later, actually, I was president of the chapter. uh, You know, (laughs) 10 years later after that, I was president of of AIA National, but kind of way led to way on that. I'm curious about your journey. Um, You've had this sort of unique perspective of both really elevated roles with as a leader in a firm, just working on projects, right? Um, also, all of this um, volunteerism with the AIA and other organizations. And that's a unique perspective. And I'd, I'd be interested to know if you feel like the role of the architect has actually evolved over uh, those years. I mean, from my perspective, it seems like there's more engagement in political and policy issues than in decades past, but that might be because I came out of school in the mid nineties when maybe that was at a low and now it's back to where it was in the seventies when, you know, when you really started getting into this. Um, so I'm just sort of curious about your perspective, uh, 
uh, on the profession in terms of ha has it really evolved over the years? Is it really changing? I, I think the answer to that is yes. I think it's changed and changing a lot. Uh, and I'm sure that, that it ebbs and flows. I mean, if you go back and you look at, you know, what was happening with CM and things like that, you know, architects back in the 20s and 30s really thought they had to save the world. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, to a great extent, you know, this is literally, well, what's, what simply is going on in the, our world? You know, what, what's the purpose of us shaping the built environment? And, you know, there are times when it seems like that's totally focused on what do the bank presidents want? And there are other times when it's really obvious that there's a larger mission that really must be, uh, you know, engaged. Um, today, that larger mission is just about smacking us up the side of the head with a two-by-four. It, it couldn't <laughs> be any more, you know, compelling and, and imperative. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it, it's really easy to get stuck on climate change, you know, because that it, it looms so large and it really means retooling everything that we do everywhere. Um, but, you know, we have to constantly remind ourselves that that is linked at the hip with global urbanization, that we are going to lay the foundations in the next 20 or 30 years as we decarbonize the built environment, we are also going to be laying the foundations for the urban future that humanity will live in. And it will live in from here on out. We, just, we yeah. just went through a big inflection point at the turn of this century, turn of this millennia, where human humankind is now an urban species. And we it's our job to create the conditions in which our species is going to thrive in the future. Uh, so, um, you know, AIA has talked about this uh, in terms of it's, it is necessary for architects to go from the role of being just trusted advisors to also being civic leaders. And uh, right. it, it's true. It, it, you know, we, we, we understand that in serving our clients through things like environmental impacts or, for that matter, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, we might be serving our, our clients, but we're also impacting the world. The whole darn world, whether we want to be or not, we are. And therefore, we have to be serving the world, too. We can't just be serving clients. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it seems like you feel that, I mean, I've always, I always felt this tension when I was working as an architect, because it's a highly educated cohort of people that most want to do very well, but it's also a service profession. You're just sort of responding to the demands of clients, but it sounds like you feel that architects really can be activists in, in some way. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think there's probably a client out there that if you say, hey, while we're doing this for you, we can also be, be doing this good for your neighbors or the, or the town or the world and would say, no, I don't want to do that. But I've actually never <laughs> met that client. You know, I, I never have. I, right. I, the, the, the clients that I've worked with and I, and I am lucky. I've gotten to work with just tremendous clients on amazing projects. But, you know, if you can show them that you're not ignoring them for the, you know, for some greater good, but there is an alignment between their good and the greater good, they feel better. It, it, this is a win-win. It isn't like yeah. you're having to force <laughs> them to do something good you know, that, that is despite their own interests, it's in addition to their own interests. Yeah. 
You were among, uh, you know, I mentioned this at the outset, among the earliest folks that I can recall that was making the case publicly that existing buildings had to be a really central component of climate action and that, in fact, they represent like a huge opportunity for climate mitigation. When do you feel like this became clear to you and how has that focus kind of manifested itself in your roles as, as architect, as, as AIA president, as, uh, as advocate in your community? So this is a classic architect story of knowing where to borrow a good idea when you see one. <laughs> so I, I, I mentioned at the outset that, you know, I sort of professionalized my interest in, in sustainability when I got involved with Clinton's council on, on uh, sustainable development. I spent uh, almost two years doing that. And again, that was a volunteer thing. It was, you know, serving on a committee basically. But when I came away from it, I felt like I had just gotten a PhD on sustainability. I had, I had met literally worldwide experts on sustainable communities, sustainable transportation, sustainable buildings, green, you know, just, wow, my head was ready to explode. And at that point, I had my own firm and I kind of looked around the office and I looked at my projects and I went, I have to go do something different. It's time for me to, to, to go to the next phase here. What is it? So, you know, and this is another classic architectural anecdote. Well, what do you do? Well, you could have lunch with people. What else? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I literally uh, uh, spent almost a year just talking with people about, you know, sustainable design, green building. What are you doing? What, you know, what's your view? The best conversation that I had during that year was with a guy named Mike Quinn. You might recognize that name, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we had this conversation and I talked about environmental design, green building, the stewardship of the natural environment and the importance of our role in doing that. And he talked about historic preservation and, uh, you know, saving existing buildings and the stewardship of the, of the heritage environment. Okay. And we kind of walked away from that lunch going, you know, no one's bringing these two things together and they reinforce each other a hundred percent. They reinforce each other a thousand percent. So within about another year, I actually had closed my office and, and went to work for Mike Quinn with this as the goal. You know, th this is our specific mission. We are going to yeah. develop the notion of sustainable stewardship together. It's really interesting um, because there also has been some tension between these communities, the historic, the kind of pure historic preservation community and and the environmental community in, um, in some ways. Um, but of course, uh, they really need each other. Um, and your comment about um, urbanization being a part, the big, a big piece of the climate change story also connects obviously to existing buildings because so many of the existing buildings that we would be adapting rather than destroying uh, are in communities that were developed pre-automobile. And so, come with the bones of sustainable transportation infrastructure, essentially. And so those two things are not as aligned as well in people's minds as that I wish they were. Yeah. In terms of sort of climate action at the AIA, when did it become clear to you that there needed to be a really firm stance from the AIA 
because that wasn't, you know, obviously there were a lot of architects that were, you know, very committed and in, in, into this and involved in Green Building Council and other other initiatives, but it wasn't necessarily a primary focus of the AIA for a long time. When did it become clear to you that something like this needed to happen? So to a great extent, um, uh, I reiterated something that was already there, but but needed to kind of get to the next level, get hit, hit the next plateau. So there's actually a, a, a very long and very rich history of the AIA's involvement with uh, green building, sustainable design, and then climate change. And actually the words climate change were first introduced at AIA through Ed Masaria and Architecture 2030. Sure. In 2005, I mean, we're talking a long time ago now, it's, you know, yeah. 16 years ago. Um, interestingly enough, it took two years for Ed knocking on the door at AIA to literally be let in the door and, and to have the, <laughs> the then AIA president invite him to come to uh, the, the board and talk about climate change. You know, it took a couple of years wow. for anybody to think that this was actually a topic that, that should be addressed at AIA. But um, despite that, you know, the, the real seeds for this go back to Bob Berkebile in 1990, Actually, sure. Bob Berkebile and you know the founder of BNIM, uh, he he went to the 1990 convention and presented a resolution uh, on you know this kind of green building, sustainable design topic that is so almost exactly word for word the resolution that we presented in 2019 for climate action. And it's just <laughs> like you know, don't tell anybody that Bob already wrote this. You know. <laughs> uh, you know. But, a visionary, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but uh, so it really does uh, date back, you know, a, a couple of decades. But, you know, add to that then the context of Paris and 2015. You know, now this became a global topic. And um, when you dig into what this really means for the architectural profession, um, in the first place, it's a way for us to make better buildings. I've never known anything that you bring to an architect and you say, we can make better buildings if we do this. And architects go, nah, I don't want to make better buildings. You know, of course, you know, like we're geeks. We love to do this stuff. You know, we want to do the best buildings we can do. Um, the second thing it does is it makes architecture more relevant to a hugely important global initiative. You know, oh, I don't want to be relevant. No, I just want to sit over here and twiddle my thumbs. You know, again, we, we're a real purpose-driven, you know, uh, uh, emission-driven, uh, you know, profession. And, you know, so, and that's really kind of the third aspect of it is it, it makes our work more meaningful, you know, more purposeful. Yeah. So it isn't like, oh, we get to do good buildings or we get to do climate action. These things all reinforce each other. And it makes what we do more valuable uh, to, to what it, all, every scale of community that we're working in, including our, the client scale. Yeah. When we look at something like the AIA's, I guess it was 2019, the, the sort of major commitment to the climate action, um, how, do we, how do we assess um, the impact of something like that? Like, what does success look like? So I think I think success has to happen, kind of looking in and looking out, if you will. Mm -hmm. So the looking in part 
there's really kind of two parts of the looking in. The first is we have to get all 95,000 AIA members and we have to get the other something like, you know, 50,000 architects that are not part of AIA. Why are you not part of AIA? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, how come you're not contributing to the greater good? Oh, did I say that out loud? Um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, we've got to get the whole profession as advocates, the, the profession is our number one advocacy team to be doing what we need to be doing. We're not going to get somebody else to do it for us. The second part of the kind of inward look is it's every project, man. It's every project. Every project right. is an opportunity to, to look through the climate lens at what we're doing. Every client that you deal with on every one of those projects now has the ability to also look at their project through the climate lens and for you to convert them to be a member of the advocacy team. That should be yeah. your goal on every project. So, so that's the sort of inward looking. The, the, the sort of more outward looking then is, okay, let's look around us. What is it that we actually our challenge. What do we have to work with here? Well, we have this unbelievably giant building stock that that's just all this stuff laying around us. I mean, I I would I would ask our listeners here and and architects and and you know everybody in the building sector. Do you know how many buildings there are in the United States of America? Can you answer that question? <laughs> do you know how many? I can. Do you know how many square feet of buildings there are in the United States of America? Why don't you, we know the population of the United States? If you ask a doctor, they can tell you the population of the United States. They can tell you the population yeah. of the of the town they're being a doctor in. Why don't we know the seminal facts of the work that we do? The answer, by the way, is something like 325 billion square feet of buildings. Yeah. By the way, 60% of that area is single family houses. It's time for the architectural community to stop ignoring the single family house. It's 60% of the building stock. Um, so when we actually get serious about those things, uh, you begin to see how the facts are supporting us. They're not, they're not frustrating us. They're not, they're not barriers to us. Um, but it is, you know, literally uh, what we have to work with. It, it's, it's, you know, yeah. it's our it's our tools. It's the, the bricks and mortar that we have to work with. And I just say one more thing about, you know, what the success is. And I'm going to go back to this twin challenge of we've got climate change and global urbanization. And that is we have to not waste the climate crisis, that the climate crisis is an opportunity for us to get it right in laying the foundations for the urban future. And there's a lot of things that are wrong. You know, I go back to Pratt. I go back to the 1960s and Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses. Look around at our world. Robert Moses won that battle. Our cities are more cities of Robert Moses than they are of Jane Jacobs, despite guys like Jan Gale trying to get the, our cities to be Jane Jacobs cities. I think, Even New York. Yeah, I think now we get it. We, we understand uh, that we lost something when we let Robert Moses tell us how to build our cities instead of Jane Jacobs. And we're trying to do everything we can to, to retrofit that and to, and to sort of get back to that. But climate change 
how much we're going to change the world over the next 20 or 30 years is our opportunity to reintroduce Chain Jacobs in, 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 into our cities and to really uh, be the mechanism by which we lay the foundations to the global urban future that, that humanity needs us to do. You have also been a really vocal proponent, and thank you <laughs> uh, for this, of the profession confronting our equity and diversity issues, uh, as well as responding really directly to the Me Too movement. Um, these issues in our profession are very deep-seated. And I'm sort of curious what you, from your perspective, what you feel is holding the profession back on these issues and how we go about correcting it and how quickly do we think that can happen? Yeah. Um, wow. How much time do we have left? <laughs> as much as you need. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a big yeah, one. Yeah. You, you know that this is, this is a huge question. Um, you know, it's kind of back to the looking and looking out that, you know, well, if we're going to look in, uh, this is a huge, huge part of us looking in. Um, so, you know, I was president in 2018. I started to ask myself, uh, what is, uh, you know, what does it mean to be the president of the AIA in 2018? And the two things that I found most quickly um, were, of course, climate change. But then the other was, oh, 2018 is... Uh, the 50th anniversary of Whitney Young coming to the AIA convention in Portland, Oregon in 1968 and saying, architects, you are irrelevant to civil rights. What, what are you doing? Okay. And, <laughs> and I, I just want to dwell on that for another minute. So this was June 68. Did everybody remember what happened in April 68? Martin Luther King was assassinated days before, literally days before the convention, Robert Kennedy had been assassinated. So uh, Whitney Young comes to the AA convention. He's down, man. He is like, you know, semi-suicidal. The world looks very dark at this moment. And it's like, he comes to this convention of all these guys in, you know, jackets and ties, patting each other on the back, putting medals around each other's necks. You know, talking about how how great their buildings are, their their glass boxes that they're designing are, you know, and he just goes, "You're ir irrelevant. You're not you're not serving the communities that desperately need your help." Well, fifty years later, I got to be president of the AIA. The first thing I did was check this check the numbers. I I, I do a lot of that. I check the numbers on things. You know? Right. Uh, uh oh. Guess what? The architectural profession has zero more African-American participation 50 years later than when Whitney Young walked in. Wow. Zero. You know, maybe within 100 or 200, you know, just not, really we had made no progress. And yeah. um, there were other ways that we had. Uh, women in the profession had changed dramatically during those 50 years. Um, but clearly the job that we have to do is in a world that's very different, you know, from, uh, you know, the, even the world in, 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 I'll say even in the fifties, when we started to create this post-war world. Um, uh, so we really, we literally have a, a different job to do and we can't do it 
if we're the same people, we have to be a bigger community. Okay. You know, we can't walk into certain neighborhoods and have credibility being who we are. We we have to have a much, much bigger tent. Um, to, To do that, we have to have more paths into the profession. And I'll just mention one community colleges, you know, um, yeah. uh, I, I was the, the, you know, the first president of AIA to go to the association of, uh, you know, architectural community college programs, go to their conference and say, you matter in our profession, the, the, the accreditation process that exists in our profession through N, you know, NAB and NCARB and so on almost doesn't recognize community colleges. And I think that, you know, the community colleges today, right now in 2021, if we're going to get to a diverse population quickly, let's start there. I mean, you know, we we know about the historically black colleges and, 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 and universities that have architecture programs. We're not doing enough with them, but we're also not doing enough expanding. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to mention is that during my career, you know, when I was in high school, I was an office boy for an architectural firm in the town I grew up in, a little town in New Jersey. And that firm, which was um, about 35 people, by by the way, the three women who were members of that firm were all secretaries. There were no women architects. Um, but there were about 10 architects. And the other 25 people were career drafters. Okay. Yeah. So we had a robust paraprofessional world in the architectural profession. In fact, most of the people in that firm and many, many firms were paraprofessionals. If you go to a construction office, you will see a real uh, kind of a spectrum of education levels, skill levels, many paths to get into that construction trailer, many. Right. If you go to an architectural office, oh, you can get a bachelor of architecture, you can get a master of architecture. Okay, we got two. You know, it just it's a completely different <laughs> scenario. And uh, so we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We have to be intentional about it. And I'm very happy to say that AIA is very much intentional about it at this point. Um, I think the schools are very intentional about it. And, and so I teach now. And I can tell you, post-George Floyd, the conversation in the schools has really changed. And and it's literally like, what are we doing today about uh, recognizing our own inherent biases and doing positive, taking positive steps to have a a more diverse uh, student body and and faculty body as well? Um, And then... uh, we have to do it in the firms. And I'll just close with uh, two other thoughts. One thing we really have to do is we have to reach younger. We have to get people that mm. are five and six and seven years old that are just awakening to the world and, and letting them know that actually they can shape the world that they're in and that the world that they're in is shaping them. Um, and then the other thing we need to do is we've got to do something about the business model. We can't make it so that you have to sacrifice, you know, half of your income to be an architect. That's ridiculous. And I can tell you that when you go to 
uh, underrepresented communities, and you talk about the architecture profession, it is not unusual at all to hear people say, I won't let my kid be an architect. They can go to school and become an engineer and make twice as much money. They can go work for a contractor and make twice as much money. I haven't fought these years. I haven't fought this hard to give my kid an opportunity to go to college and let them come out and and and, and make coolie wages being an architect. Yeah. Just not an acceptable uh, situation. And uh, it's up to AIA, but it's up to every firm to be fighting for changing the business model and expanding the business model. We, we have to do way more to do a good building today. You know, as a historic preservation architect, I'll work on a hundred year old building. That building might've been, uh, you know, that hundred thousand square foot building on the campus of the University of Michigan. It might've been built with 15 or 20 drawings. Our renovation of that building is like 350 drawings. Yeah. And six materials. <laughs> right. We're having to do way more work to earn our fees. We need to get paid for it. And we're not. We're critically, we're, we're killing ourselves by not having a business model that works. It's definitely a, a direct alignment between that issue and the diversity and equity representation issues in, in the profession. Absolutely. So, uh, Carl, what is next for you in your career? We're all emerging from the long, dark year plus of COVID. Um, what are you excited about uh, in in the in the coming year or years? Yeah. So, um, uh, I'm very excited about the threshold that I think that we're crossing together. Um, uh, I think that it's great, great for the profession, but I think it's also, you know, just it's what the world needs. Okay. Um, I'm also very excited. Uh, my students, I think, get it more than my uh, colleagues on the faculty. You know, I think it's time to let the students teach the faculty um, on a lot of this. Um, so I, I kind of feel like the what's in the air is pretty positive, okay? So I'm excited about that. I think we're gonna emerge stronger. I, I do wanna say though that, you know, uh, you know, hey, open the New York Times, whatever. We need to be prepared to struggle. This is gonna be a struggle. Yeah. No one's gonna hand a carbon-free world to us on a silver platter. We're gonna to have to fight the fossil fuel industry to do that. And, and we, we need to be prepared to, uh, you know, really have this struggle and win it. Okay. Um, but I can just say one last thing about sort of what I'm doing. So, so this year is COP26. I'm totally focused through three different organizations that I'm involved with, with getting to COP26 and having the building sector uh, and the existing building sector be a really uh, uh, important and uh, you know eventful part of that. That's great. Um, the second is that I'm trying to do sort of COP26 at home. So DC, uh, let's see, we have a largely New York audience, probably even more than New York. No, uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, DC, like New York, is really trying to get their act together and, and have a climate action plan that really means something and, and will ultimately really change the city in the next 20 and 30 years. Um, so through the District of Columbia Preservation League, 
we're putting together a series of programs on the climate action plan and trying to bring the preservation community and an existing building community together and really understand how we can uh, you know, be looking at existing buildings and, uh, from the climate action perspective. And then also how we can bring our stewardship perspective into the climate action plan. And, and my hope is that you know, next year we'll come away from this with a, a kind of a, a scalable model of you know this is this is how uh, you know existing building stewards and preservation community can really contribute to climate action. Well, uh, that is actually kind of inspiring. Um, I think that a lot of people that have a resume similar to yours would have seen um, being president of the AIA as the kind of career cherry on top, and then they'd be done after that. And it is really inspiring to see you remain so engaged and activated about these really critical issues. This has been a great conversation. Um, I, our profession is much better for having you in it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that you are going to continue to stay engaged. And I'm looking forward to the next chapter in, in Carl Elefante's <laughs> uh, long list of achievements. So thank you very much uh, for being with us today. Yes, yeah, so it's been really great talking to you. I, I appreciate the invitation to be here today. Of course. And thank you, uh, everyone out there for listening in and, uh, and look forward to, to hearing from and seeing everyone uh, soon at uh, Building Energy Exchange Programs. Carl, thank you again very much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Have a great day. <laughs>